Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth and Valerie, and we're back with another episode of Born in the Right Generation. This week's episode is focusing on none other than the First Lady of Rock and Roll, Janis Joplin herself. Before we get into it, be sure to follow us on Spotify and Instagram. So this week's episode, we're going to be talking about Janis Joplin, one of the very few females in rock and roll in her time period. Her life story is very interesting and in a way differs a lot from the other members of the 27 Club that we have talked about and are going to talk about. Janice was born in Port Arthur, Texas in January of 1943. She had two younger siblings and she was pretty much an outcast from the very start. Her town was relatively conservative, which you would expect from a town in Texas at the time. Um, And... When she was younger, when she was like in elementary school, she was often picked on and bullied for having different, supposedly more radical beliefs, uh, specifically desegregation. There is a story of her when she was in elementary school, I believe. It was either elementary or middle school, where she, her class was talking about integration and sort of integration versus segregation, and she was a very vocal proponent of integration. And... This, caused, this led to a lot of bullying from the rest of her classmates, saying like calling her horrible names and using slurs and things, uh, all because she believed in desegregation. And this later helped when she was a teenager, she befriended some other people who were deemed outcasts by her town, and they introduced her to a lot of blues music. And, of course, anybody who knows blues music knows that blues is generally sung by African Americans. And so, for example... She listened to singers like Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, and others like Billie Holiday. And this really opened her eyes. It made her want to be a singer. And, you know, this also did later influence her to become even more liberal in a time where it just wasn't accepted. And so this sort of early introduction to these blues singers gave her her distinctive bluesy style, which you can definitely hear in some of her later albums. We will get into that. And... It sort of set her on a path because then, like, it was from that moment on that she knew that she wanted to become a singer. Yeah, as Elizabeth said, um, Janice really wasn't a very popular kid growing up. She was often picked on in her school. This basically lasted throughout her entire time at school up until high school. And most of this was also because of her appearance. Like, she said that her hair was too frizzy. She had bad acne that caused facial scarring. She was overweight. And that coupled with the fact that she held these kind of radical beliefs at the time that she got along with uh, African-Americans and she didn't believe in segregation really sort of caused her to be known as sort of an outcast and she felt like she was a misfit. And she said, she once said, um, quote, the students would tease me calling me a freak or a pig. I was a misfit, I read, I painted, I thought. I didn't hate black people. So she was very, like, unconventional uh, from the start, as a person, but also as a musician. Yeah, so, like, in her town, she did have a reputation for being pretty unconventional. By the time of her senior year of high school, she kind of had a reputation for being wild, partying all the time, drinking a lot. She was known for being pretty sexually promiscuous and, like, dressing weirdly. She would wear tight skirts, high heels, um, and later, you know, she would get into all the hippie outfits, but she was bullied a lot for 
her like radical beliefs, her artistic lifestyle, pretty much everybody in the town thought she was weird. But she ended up attending the University of Texas at Austin for one year, and just as it had been in the past, she faced a lot of bullying on campus. Um, there, like one of the worst incidents was when she was voted ugliest man on campus by a bunch of guys in fraternities. And that did actually end up contributing to her leaving the school, which, you know, in my opinion, personally, is just, like, honestly disgusting. So, first of all, we're going to go on a little rant here, but I love Janis Joplin with, like, my whole heart, you know? And, like, the fact that somebody would even think of doing that, like, yes, Valerie has heard me talk about Janis or cry over her, various things, but, like, I'm just appalled. A while back, I was actually watching a documentary on the 27 Club, and, like, they sort of went through the stories of the main six members, and, like, there were a lot of weird things about that documentary, specifically the fact that Mick Jagger got more screen time than Jim Morrison did, but, like, specifically, it was Janice's story that made me just so sad. Like, this woman faced nothing but bullying, and, like, she didn't have many friends, she was constantly, there were people who did look out for her, but... Her whole life growing up, all she did was face adversity and everybody hated her for, you know, just respecting people and, you know, believing in human rights. It's just ridiculous, honestly. So this story especially just makes me so, mm, so upset. Like, it hurts. Like, that really did damage her self-esteem a lot, even though, you know, I personally think she was beautiful, but it damaged her self-esteem a lot. And so she ended up She completed one year there and dropped out and then moved on to San Francisco. Yeah, she actually was quoted as saying that um, she left uh, for San Francisco, quote, just to get away because my head was in a much different place. And I think from that quote, you can see that she definitely didn't feel like she belonged in her town and in her community where she was. So she set out to essentially try to find her place in the world and do the things that she loved in a place which was kind of known for being more liberal and, you know, sort of like the middle, like the the center of the hippie movement, uh, which was really taking off at the time. Um, and actually, even though she was, you know, bullied a lot at uh, university and also at school, um, there was actually um, an article in the campus newspaper called The Daily Texan, which ran a profile of her. Uh, in 1962 called uh, She Dares to be Different. Uh, The article began, quote, she goes barefooted when she feels like it, wears Levi's to class because they're more comfortable, and carries her auto harp with her everywhere she goes so that in case she gets the urge to break into song, it will be handy. Her name is Janice Joplin. So even though she didn't really fit in with her community there, I felt like people, there were a few people like people who wrote this article who saw her potential and saw that, you know, even though she was different, it was a good different. And it was, uh, she was meant to be celebrated as a person and as an artist. Like they saw what she could be. And I really think this whole newspaper article really sums up Janice's personality and what made her so unique in that time period and also why she blew up and why she's still remembered today. Yeah, I definitely agree. She was always, she always did her own thing and no matter how, like, no matter how many times people tried to stomp her down and crush her, like, she didn't let them. She faced a lot 
growing up, especially like with her drug addictions later on and everything, and she still refused to let people control her. Like, she was the one... You know, especially in a time where, like, this was the 1960s. Women really didn't have, like, they weren't necessarily considered equal. And, like, she wouldn't accept that. She was, she did her own thing. She was proud of it. And she didn't let anybody else tell her what to do. So, the following year, in 1964, she met um, future Jefferson Airplane guitarist. And I swear, I should know how to pronounce this by now, but I don't. Jorma Kaukonen? Kaukonen? Him. And the two of them, they started recording together. And so they didn't really have, like, any professional recordings. But they um, they ended up making a bootleg album called The Typewriter Tape. Because uh, Jorma's wife was actually heard on one of the tracks playing the typewriter. So they ended up naming it after that. And so around this time, um, Janice was also a known bisexual woman. So I don't believe she was openly bisexual at the time like she didn't hide it but she also wasn't like super vocal about it I guess um and so like that was another thing that really like people didn't really know about they didn't really accept I guess was like different sexualities so I just think that's really cool but like that she was you know she was open about herself so she did have many relationships with women and men um, when she first moved to San Francisco, she met this woman named Jay Whitaker, but the relationship didn't last because, obviously, once she moved to San Francisco, this is when Janice started developing drug problems, and, um, also because of Janice's sexual relationships with various other people, and so, later on in San Francisco, uh, I believe, she met another woman named Peggy Caserta, and the two of them would end up becoming like, lifelong friends and, like, occasionally sexual partners or romantic partners. Yeah. She actually met uh, Peggy in November of 1966 uh, when the band that she was with, um, Big Brother and the Holding Company, they performed at a San Francisco venue called The Matrix. And it was really small, that venue, and uh, the people who attended uh, only came up to around 15, and Peggy was one of those people. And at the time, she ran a successful clothing boutique, um, and she met Janice, and they sort of hit it off. Uh, at that time, Janice wasn't really at the peak of her fame. Obviously, you know, she wasn't really performing to like tons and tons of people, as she later would be at really big festivals like Woodstock. Um, but essentially, approximately a month after Peggy attended this concert, Janice actually met her again at. Um, her boutique and said that Janice uh, could not afford to buy a pair of jeans that was for sale. Once again, this shows that, you know, they met when Janice wasn't really at the peak of her fame. Uh, Peggy took pity on her and gave her a pair for free. And actually, their relationship remained strictly platonic for more than a year, even though they became really, really close. It didn't venture into, like, romantic territory until much later. But uh, I heard that Peggy actually came out with an autobiography about Janice uh, after her death. Mm -hmm, And it was very, like, it received kind of, like, mixed reviews. It was pretty controversial for numerous reasons. Mainly because, like, Peggy was detailing, you know, her relationship with Janice, like, pretty 
explicitly in the book like there wasn't yeah, yeah. yeah I, I feel like that's the best way to phrase that and a lot of people didn't take very yeah. kindly to that it was very taboo yeah I, guess. yeah I guess a lot of people were like why she shouldn't be revealing all these like super intimate details about janice like this it's not really fair to janice because she didn't get a say in what got published and like why would we even want to know that really so yeah it was stuff like that but it ended up getting um mixed reviews i did read about that so it was around this time like from 1963 sort of to 1965 where janice's substance abuse started like really ramping up um however i did want to point out i'm not exactly like sure what kind of point this makes but you know you read about all these other the other members of the 27 club brian jones jimmy hendrix jim morrison like they all had drug problems too but the thing was that like when they were under the influence they would get like super violent and like angry and even abusive but that just like wasn't janice's thing i watched this documentary it's free on youtube i believe um and they talk about that and how really when she took drugs like the only person she was really harming was herself because that was like always her thing was sticking up for the little guy because you know she knew what it was like to be bullied and pushed around and stuff so she always like she never became violent with other people she never like tried to hurt anybody else when she was under the influence but she did have a lot of drug problems a lot of alcohol problems um she suffered a lot because like she started using heroin at this time she was known for using heroin and speed um she also drank a lot of Southern Comfort whiskey, which was, like, really widely known to be her favorite. And I can't remember if it was, I think it was, a lot, like, later when they actually sent her a fur coat. Um, because she did, like, a lot of promotions for their brand unintentionally because that was, like, the only thing that she would like to drink. So, yeah, this, like, Southern Comfort, it was widely known to be her favorite. It was actually what she was drinking, I think, when she met Jim Morrison, that time where she broke the bottle over his head. So, yeah, fun fact right there. We'll get more into that story later. <laughs> I do I do love that story though. Like honestly, Janice was a Janice was a queen. Like she truly deserves so much better. Like I'm a whole Janice Joplin stan basically. But anyway, um so it was around yes. So it was around this time where um like in 1965 her friends visited her and they like realized that she had lost a lot of weight and she was like super addicted to drugs. She weighed like only 90 something pounds at the, around this time. So they made her return to Port Arthur. And like once her parents noticed um like they like she ended up actually changing herself. So I think that was another interesting thing is that Janice's relationship with her parents like I don't believe it was known to be completely terrible. Like, I know the others had really hard relationships with their parents, especially Jimi Hendrix. Um, but, like, that, that really wasn't Janice's thing. She had siblings. Her parents actually gave her extra attention because they felt like, you know, she was different. So she kind of needed that extra help. So, yeah, she didn't seem to have the most, like, terrible relationship with her parents. But anyway, she started going through, like, a normal period in her life. So she started trying to get help for her addiction. She enrolled as an anthropology major at a local university. She started actually getting, like, therapy. So she was getting drug counseling to make sure, like, to sort of get her off of her addiction. And she, like, she did continue singing and playing guitar. But, like, it was around this time she, she adopted more of, like, a folksy style. Like, she would bring her acoustic guitar and play it. 
and sing while she was doing her therapy sessions. But she started wearing her hair up in like a beehive or a bun style. She started dressing a lot more conservatively and, you know, she started gaining some healthy weight back. And she actually um, ended up getting engaged in 1965 as well to a man named Peter DeBlanc. But because of reasons on both sides, mostly because of his need to travel and um, later her joining a band, they ended the engagement pretty soon afterwards. So then in 1966, she was on her way back to the top when she got the attention of Big Brother and the Holding Company, which later you know, became known for being Janis Joplin's band at the time. So they knew of her previous drug problems, and so they actually told her to like check with her parents and inform them to make sure that she was going, like that she was, um, you know, that they were okay with her going, that she was going to be okay if they took her away so she wouldn't get addicted to drugs again. I believe she was, what, only 23 at the time? 20, yeah, 23. Um, so they ended up packing up, they left for San Francisco together, and... She did manage to, um, like, try and avoid drugs for several weeks while she was there. Like, her roommate, she made a deal with him. She was like, you can't use needles in the apartment. You're not, I'm not going to let you do drugs here. But, of course, that didn't, it didn't end up working out because he did have friends over to do drugs. And then she sort of had, like, a breakdown. And I feel like she definitely had some form of PTSD with uh, the drugs. Yeah, there's actually a quote from somebody who was there, and they said that, they described the scene, uh, quote, uh, Janice went nuts. I had never seen anybody explode like that. She was screaming and crying, and Travis walked in. She screamed at him. We had a pact. You promised me there wouldn't be any of that in front of me, and Travis is the roommate. Uh, I was over my head, and I tried to calm her down. I said, they're just doing mescaline because that's what I thought it was. She said, you don't understand. I can't see that. I just can't stand to see that. So from this, you know, quote, you can see that Janice definitely didn't want to be around drugs. She definitely had real bad experiences with it. And she just didn't want to be associated with drugs anymore. But unfortunately, because of the people that she was surrounded by, she sort of slowly got sucked back into that lifestyle yeah and I think that's probably the most unfortunate part about all of this for me is that like she really did try she tried so hard to get help there were so many times where she was getting clean and then it would end up with a relapse for one reason or another um like I remember from the documentary I don't think it's on Netflix anymore but if anybody wants to check it out it's called 27 gone too soon where they had a friend come in I can't remember the friend's name but Pretty much what she said was that even though Janice always tried her hardest to stay away from them, they, the drugs always managed to find her. And, you know, that was the thing. Even right before she died, she was trying to get clean and, like, make sure that she was okay. And then, you know, the week before or so, everything went downhill. And so, I don't know. It's just, it really is tragic. For me, this is probably the most tragic story of all of them just because... You know, I do believe she was a genuinely good person. She didn't try and hurt anybody. She, you know, she stuck up for people. She lived her life the way she wanted to. She wasn't hurting anybody. And she still ended up dying. And I don't know. It's just, it really is tragic. Yeah, I definitely agree. She really deserved, like, as you said before, she deserved way, way better than she got. An absolute queen. That's all. 
So it was around, it was after this that they started traveling around California. They were finding, you know, new places to play, a lot of clubs, venues, small venues. And then in August of 1967, they released their first album, which was called Big Brother and the Holding Company, which we will talk about in more depth in their music section. Um, This was shortly after they appeared at the Monterey Pop Festival, and there weren't like many major hits from the album, but it did sort of spawn interest. They had a couple minor hits, um, specifically regarding Janice and her voice, because she sang lead for most of the album. So for pretty much the rest of 1967, they toured around and, you know, they started performing. And then in 1968, the media started getting even more interest in Janice specifically, and so that sort of caused a lot of resentment within the band. So, you know, they would always be asking Janice questions during interviews. She was always sort of the, at the forefront. And, like, the rest of the band always thought that fame was getting to her head. And so, I don't know, like, for me personally, how many bands broke up because of, like, ego problems? A ton. A a lot of bands. I swear. A lot of bands. (laughs) I swear. Ego at least partially, you know, contributed to the breakup of quite a lot of bands. I, I feel like, you know, fighting amongst the members you know even the Beatles broke up mainly because of well actually for a variety of reasons but ego problems was definitely one of them okay well let's not pretend like John and Paul's egos weren't like really fighting each other at the time yeah okay that's true definitely and like even George was getting in on the sort of egoism because he was like why won't you let me write song I mean okay maybe George was like more right in this scenario than John and Paul were but I mean you know the Beatles broke up because the egos like these these are all grown adults. They gotta, ugh, they gotta stop that. But yeah, so that ended up leading to problems with Big Brother and the Holding Company. But they also did work on their second studio album. Uh, it's called Cheap Thrills, and it notably contains "Piece of My Heart," which is one of her most famous songs, and also "Summertime." And so Janice actually ended up putting a lot of effort into the album. Uh, she contributed the most to it. Because, you know, she was singing lead, but she also started helping produce and arrange the songs as well. And so, um, during the recording session, she was always known to be the very first one to arrive, the last one to leave. She, she had a good work ethic. Like, you know, this, she always wanted to be able to take control where she could. And so, like, you know, doing the albums was the way that she could do that. And so, you know, Peace of My Heart became um, a pretty big hit, and Cheap Thrills, I believe, actually ended up charting. Uh, yeah, it was one of the most successful albums of the year. It hit number one on Billboard, but yeah, we'll get into that in more detail. Um, so, yeah, it was around this time that they started. the band kept having more problems, and so um, at the very end of the year, she announced that she was leaving Big Brother and the Holding Company. And so... The next year, she went away, she formed a new group called the Cosmic Blues Band, and it was around this time, because a lot of her music prior to um, 1969 is, like, definitely falls into the more psychedelic category rather than um, bluesy, and so she ended up, she went back to her, like, blues roots, I suppose, and she recorded an album with them called I Got Dem Old Cosmic Blues Again, Mama, and... It was around this time that she relapsed again into her drug use, especially heroin, even though she did make a lot of efforts to keep clean. 
So, like, it came to the point where she was pretty much prepared to get arrested because she couldn't bear to be without the drugs. Uh, her group toured around Europe, and she really didn't like it, mostly because, like, the audiences weren't as fun or as rowdy as American audiences. Um, and also because she, like, she was always carrying drugs with her, and she always thought that, um, what is it? Like, she always thought she was going to get stopped and she was going to get arrested and everything. And so, I can't exactly remember where this take took place. It might have been Canada. I can't remember. Or France. I feel like, I feel like it was one of those two. But, basically, she got stopped at the airport. And they were like, you're, we're going to need you to open your bag. And so, she did. And she, she, she was like, the whole time she was acting like she had nothing to hide. And so... Like, she had all her stuff in, and she was like, go ahead, if you want to, like, open it. It's all my, like, toilet products, my feminine products. And, like, the guy checking them was so embarrassed. He was like, just go ahead, just go through. Like, obviously, if you're acting like this, you can't possibly have anything to hide. Yeah. You know, she was smuggling so, drugs, way. still. I thought that was kind of Yeah, amazing. yeah, yeah. Like, Anyways, she could be very that year, when she needed to be. Uh, she performed at Woodstock, um, which, obviously, very iconic festival. Pretty much the staple of, you know hippie music at that time like sort of the accumulation of a bunch of massive bands and well-known acts that all came together for a festival of you know sex drugs and rock and roll i guess <laughs> anyways at woodstock she was incredibly excited to perform mm -hmm. uh she saw the crowds and she was pretty hyped up but due to some internal problems and also misinformation, her group was delayed getting on stage. So in order to pass the time, she actually went backstage and did heroin and drank quite a lot. So by the time her group was actually meant to perform, she was actually having trouble singing. But, you know, like, you know, the person, the queen that she was, she pushed through. She got uh, a call for an encore from the crowd. but. Even though, you know, she did push through and the crowd did like her performance, she herself didn't like her performance. So she requested that uh, the video footage of her performing would be removed from the documentary film about Woodstock. Yeah, um, so like, it's actually pretty funny. They told her, like the, or the Woodstock organizers actually did tell her, they were like, oh, it's just going to be like a regular gig. And so she was on this helicopter with Joan Baez and Joan Baez's mom and like, they were as they were going down over the like festival ground she was like wait there are so many people here so they didn't actually tell her how big it was going to be and so that was like why she was super excited to perform because you know she she loved performing for big crowds that was like her thing so yeah they just didn't they really didn't give her much warning which you know makes sense for woodstock because that was a mess of a festival i still would have gone like it would have been uncomfortable and miserable but i still yeah I, obviously i would have gone yeah just for the experience you exactly know? like i'm just trying to see roger daltrey on stage that is it thank you very much but that's fair that's just me <laughs> yeah so, so in 1970 the cosmic blues band broke up and she ended up traveling to brazil for some time and she managed to get clean from uh, her drug and alcohol use, but as soon as she got back to the U.S., it en she ended up relapsing again, and, you know, that kind of ended up sticking with her for a while. So, um, she then formed another band called the Full Tilt Boogie Band, and they were the ones who performed her last album with her, Pearl, which, you know, obviously it was released posthumously, but... 
she was really happy at like finally having the like being the leader of the group and so yeah even though the cosmic blues band was still her backing group like this was something that she had full control over and so you know she was really happy about that she started working on her new album and everything and you know over the summer she and her band started touring around and a lot of people believe that she was sort of like back at her peak she did a lot of performing on trains at this time like the while traveling and a lot of people said that those those sessions were really like her back on top so she was recording Pearl around like right before she died and it was around this time where her substance abuse started increasing and you know this is sort of right where the turning point is when she went from life to death and so we'll get into that after we talk about her music but it is as always a very tragic story so on to her music, Janice was, she was a blues artist primarily, and she's widely known as the first lady of rock and roll because, you know, at the time, there weren't many women who were, like, really in rock and roll. Obviously, they had a lot of female singers, but, you know, she was, she was, like, different, I guess. She, like, didn't feel the need to be so composed all the time. You know, she was vulgar as well. She was ready to get down and dirty and everything. I think she actually, didn't she once get arrested for yelling obscenities at cops? Yeah, I, I heard about that. Although I don't know the, the specifics of it, but she did get arrested because she was yelling at a cop at a show or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, you know, she didn't try to be, like, very proper or ladylike or anything. She did her own thing. Uh, she was she was and is mostly known for her voice she played a little bit of guitar but I don't think she played a lot on her studio albums like that just wasn't her thing uh her vocal range was three octaves and she had like if you listen to any of her songs she has a really powerful voice like she's got a really sort of like her chest voice allows her to belt really powerfully and she's got like it's really coarse and rough and very raw but I don't know, there's something about it that just gives you chills. Like, she had this ability to really, like, put a lot of emotion in her voice. And, like, this is why people started recognizing her. It's really distinct. Um, and then she also had, a like, her head voice, which she used for singing the higher notes. It's a lot softer, a lot clearer. So if you listen to her song, Maybe, you can hear both her, like, softer, clearer head voice and her chest voice, where she does a lot of belting. So... Obviously, her two biggest songs are Peace of My Heart and Me and Bobby McGee. Like, those are, like, her most well-known songs, although she does have a couple others. And those are, like, the songs where you can definitely hear her, like, her typical Janis Joplin voice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, her influences, obviously, we talked about um, a lot of blues artists. Uh, Ma Rainey, Billie Holiday, Lead Belly. And, of course, Bessie Smith, who was, like, her idol. She actually paid... Shortly, I would think it was was it how shortly before her death was it? Was it in 1970, when she paid to have Bessie Smith like get a grave? Uh, I'm not exactly sure like the exact year in which that happened, uh, but yeah, she 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 did um, pay for the tombstone of Bessie Smith because uh, Bessie Smith was buried with an unmarked grave, and Janice thought that was a slight against her legacy. Yeah, so. Janice actually ended up splitting the cost of a, a grave for Bessie, so I thought it was sweet that she really wanted to pay tribute like that. 
So Janice has four studio albums, two with Big Brother and the Holding Company, one with their Cosmic Blues Band, which is really more of a solo album, and then um, Pearl, which is like also kind of a solo album, but with the Full Tilt Boogie Band. So the first album, which was Big Brother and the Holding Company, was it was really well, well received, but it wasn't like super popular. It didn't become a smash hit or anything. Um, and she was the main singer on the album. Obviously, if you listen to it, you can hear the rest of the group also singing with her, but her voice is easily the most distinct and the most powerful. And then her second album, Cheap Thrills, was also very well received, and it was definitely more popular, obviously, because of Peace of My Heart, which was like, you know, it was a smash hit, and I believe it, it broke through the top ten in the charts, and the album actually went to number one if I remember correctly. It was one of the most successful albums of the year. I think it was the ninth best-selling album. Um, yeah, what was the first best- oh, I think the first best-selling album was, like, Beggar's Banquet or something. Or maybe it was Magical Mystery Tour, I really can't remember. I need to get a better memory. Um, so her third album was not as well-received, and it also wasn't as successful, mostly because like, they criticized her for not having a piano accompaniment. Everybody said her voice was amazing. Um, like, her performance specifically was praised, but a lot of people felt that her backing band wasn't, like, boosting her voice and that the music maybe should have been arranged differently. But this was her group at the time, and she was, like, doing kind of what she wanted to do with it. So she was adding in horn sections and, like, taking out stuff, adding stuff in. And so, you know, she enjoyed recording the album even though it definitely wasn't as big of a hit as um you know as other albums and her final album and I don't know maybe her most famous was Pearl and it was recorded you know in the days before she died and it was released posthumously she arranged so I think she sang on nine songs on the album like on the official album although if you go on Spotify the legacy edition has a bunch of live performances and demos but anyway she sang on nine of the songs on the album and she arranged all of them everything like was chosen by her was approved by her and everything and so um there are, there were a lot of auditions of it that were released yeah it was um like Elizabeth said, it was her best-selling album, but it's still her best-selling album to today. It included her first number one song, which was Me and Bobby McGee. And the act, the song uh, Mercedes-Benz um, was actually the last song that she ever recorded. Um, it was recorded on uh, Thursday, October 1st. Uh, the song uh, Mercedes-Benz was actually the last song that she ever recorded. It was recorded on Thursday, October 1st, and she died on October 4th. Um, so she really just finished this album really close to her death, which I found was quite sad, you know, because when you listen to that album, you can see, you know, what she was achieving, you know, you can, you can hear sort of the musical impact that she will have on other generation of artists, which we will get into. Like you can, you can see what made her such a big deal. And if she had yeah. been alive, you know, if, if she hadn't tragically died at 27, just imagine all the other music she could have put out. So, you know, knowing those kind of facts just make me kind of yeah, sad. Yeah, definitely. Also, I just remembered what the top selling album of 1968 was. Um, so yeah. 
it was the graduate soundtrack uh, from Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel actually had like two big albums that year. One of them was the graduate soundtrack. One of them was bookends. Turns out Magical Mystery Tour was the second best-selling album of the year, so that's why I got mixed up. But anyway, um, yeah, definitely her, I don't know, her vocal style was so unique. Like, it's really hard to replicate that. She was honestly just, like, fantastic, I think. I personally love her music. It gives me chills seeing her on stage. Like, her being able to put that much emotion into her voice. I don't know. It's just there's... It's on another level. Like... Yeah, definitely. I don't know. It's like that. Like, like the way I feel about Jimi Hendrix's guitar is the way I feel about Janice's voice. Like, there's just something completely special and unique about it that I just... I love it so much. (sighs) Also, I believe... Pearl was the album that she recorded that happy birthday message for John Lennon, right? She she did, yeah. yeah. I think Yoko Ono actually, like, reached out to her, and she she was, like, reaching out to other artists, and she was like, hey, how many of you want to go record a birthday message for John Lennon? So, if you want to listen to that, it is also on the Pearl album on Spotify. So, now we're going to move on to her untimely end, and so... Like I said, this is a pretty tragic story. However, thankfully, this time it's not like riddled with conspiracies like the other three that were that well, the others that we have done and the next one that we're going to do. It's not really riddled with conspiracy theories. Like it's pretty straightforward, I guess is the word. Yeah, like there's not a lot of controversy surrounding her matter. So by 1970, her drug problems had gotten a lot worse. She began, like, checking into motels, and, like, she was doing drugs. She had a fiancé named Seth Morgan, who was, like, a student at UC Berkeley and also a drug dealer at the same time. Um, And so, like, her heroin addiction was spiraling out of control. Her behavior was getting even more and more reckless. And so, on October 4th, she didn't show up to a recording session, and so her producer, Paul Rothschild, who, actually, let me just, like, cut in here. He was actually the one who, I believe, introduced her to Jim Morrison. Um, Like, Jim and Janice, they got along pretty well when they first met, except Jim being Jim got, like, super drunk, and Janice was just taking, like, regular drinks. And so he was, like, going after her and stuff, and... Like, he wouldn't leave her alone, and she kept turning him down and everything, and then, like, by the end of the night, she tried to leave, and he grabbed her hair, and, like, tried to pull, like, pull her back towards him, and she just straight up hit him over the head with a bottle and knocked him out cold. And, like, you'd think... That's iconic. Yeah, I know. You'd think that would, like, turn him off or something, or, like, make him realize, like, she does not want you. And then he literally woke up the next day and he was like, wow, that was awesome. So can I get her number? And I'm like, seriously? Come on, Jim. Yeah, take a hint. No, like, I can't think of a single male rock star that has brain cells other than maybe Charlie Watts and John Paul Jones. And that's about it. Yep. Like, literally everybody else. Wait, maybe Ray Manzarek, but I don't know much about him. Well, you know what? Next episode, we'll get to research the doors. Yep. Anyway, so I just think that's an amusing story. But, obviously, things didn't end well for Jim or Janice because she died that same year and then he died the year after. So, yeah. Small world. Anyway, so Paul Rothschild and her roadie, John Cook, they went to go find her because, you know, obviously they were concerned that she hadn't shown up. 
So Cook found her Porsche, her famous psychedelic Porsche, in a park in the hotel parking lot, and they went up to her room, and that was where they found her. And she was already dead by the time they found her. And so, at the scene of the at the scene of her death, they found a lot of alcohol, but they didn't find any drugs. And so it later turned out that a friend actually took all the drug paraphernalia away. But then they put the evidence back once realizing that there was going to be an autopsy and that they would find out that she had the drugs on her. And so it was believed that she was given heroin that was like more potent than the kind that she was used to taking, which you know, obviously then led to her death. Uh, the thing is, like others who had taken the same heroin from the same dealer had like also died that same week of overdoses. So you know, it seems pretty open and shut that it was just a heroin overdose, but... Um, yeah, I think it later turned out that in Peggy's book, she was she said that she didn't think that Janice died of a heroin overdose because, you know, she was supposedly she when they found her, she had um, cigarettes and change in her hands. And so Peggy actually thought that she tripped like with her heels, she tripped and broke her nose and then asphyxiated. But I don't know if there's any like actual evidence to support that theory. So that's as far as we can get into like a sort of conspiracy. But Pretty much the autopsy said the same thing, really, that, you know, it was a heroin overdose. That's pretty much her cause of death is accidental heroin overdose. Um, so, yeah, Peggy and her fiancé, Seth, were actually supposed to, like, come to the hotel that night for a threesome, but neither of them showed up, and then neither of them told her about it. So she was supposedly, like, really upset about that, but then, like, she wasn't allowing any calls to go to her room that night either. Um, when it came to, like, an official statement from her publicist, who was uh, called Maya Friedman, uh, Friedman said, quote, the heroin in her system might have killed her immediately, but it did not. Uh, when after a while she walked out to the lobby from her room at the Landmark Motor Hotel, she could not have known she was dying. There she chatted with the hotel clerk for a second and asked him to change a $5 bill for cigarettes, which she purchased from the cigarette machine at the lobby. Alcohol was also present in the blood, and her liver showed the effects of long-term heavy drinking. So, I guess from this publicity statement, you know, Peggy's claims that she died of a heroin overdose, you can see why Peggy would say that, because even her publicist said that the heroin in her system most likely should have killed her immediately, but it just didn't. So, you could say that there was something sketchy about that, but really, you know, you see the things from the autopsy, the official statements mm -hmm. from the coroner. It, it was really just an accumulation of her um, drug addiction and an overdose. I mean, her. like, when I was actually doing research, it turns out that a lot of, like, sort of the word heroin overdose is kind of a misnomer, because usually when someone overdoses on heroin, like, it's really, act like, not so much an overdose of heroin, but, like, a reaction to like heroin and other stuff that they've been putting in their body like alcohol and stuff so like an actual heroin overdose is supposedly it takes a lot longer than like what most people would perceive to be a heroin overdose and so especially if she had heroin that was like a lot stronger than what she was used to or more potent it makes sense that it might have taken her a lot longer instead of killing her immediately I don't know this is what I found like when I was looking up like the doctors or the coroner's notes and stuff so I don't know that might also be an explanation as to why she didn't die right away and she still had the cigarettes and stuff but you know it is pretty pretty clear that it was a it was heroin it was a heroin overdose and you know given her past it does make sense
Makes sense. Yeah, well, after her death, she didn't actually want, like, a big fussy funeral. In fact, she left money in her will for, um, a party. Uh, so she didn't want anything too serious. She kind of wanted, you know, partygoers to come to a funeral, get as drunk as possible, which would have been, you know, sort of her way of getting people to honor her since the drinks that she wanted to be provided were Southern Comfort, also known as, you know, her favorite uh, drink. Mm -hmm. um, she, even though she wanted her friends to throw a party, um, her f actual funeral service was actually much more understated because it was re only really attended by three people, which were her parents and her aunt, and then her ashes were quietly scattered into the Pacific Ocean along Stinson Beach. Her death actually, you know, it was obviously very unexpected. It shocked a ton of people, her fans, you know, just people who were interested in the music world, especially because just 16 days earlier, Jimi Hendrix had just died also at age 27. So losing two really huge influential musicians on the music scene, so close uh, apart and also at the same age, this was kind of like really shocking for a lot of people. And it was also sort of the birth of the whole notion of the 27 Club. Mm. And, you know, Jim Morrison would later join it as well. Yeah, it's like kind of eerie. It was, what, like just two years. When did Jim Morrison die? Like... Jim Morrison? Wasn't it like two um, years to the day that Brian died? He he died in 71. Uh, I can't remember like if it was exactly... I think it was July of 1971. It was. July. It's July 3rd. Yeah, July 3rd. And Brian also died. Yeah, Brian died that day too. So it was like within two years. That's oh, wow. Like four huge musicians, yeah. like four really big musicians dying at the same age. So, you know, that obviously, that's why there are so many conspiracies. I just think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. But, you know, it was all so close to one another. But, you know, obviously everybody remembers them now, even if it's just because of the 27 Club. Like, that is something that it's always going to stick with people. And, you know, Janice's legacy has continued till today definitely definitely you know every decade since janice passed away you know way up through the 1990s even her record styles just kept going up despite the fact that she was actually no more no longer alive to make more music and throughout the year she was inducted into many many you know walks of fames hall of fames like in 1995 she was inducted to the rock and roll hall of fame uh, in 2013, she was honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So, you know, her influence can, definitely can't be understated. She's inspired a ton of well-known female artists after her, including uh, Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac and pop star Yeah, Pink. I definitely, like, I don't know. One of the big things that you had to do, and especially, like, as a female artist, you had to be, like, sort of fit these conventions. You had to be pretty. You know, you had to be really skinny and, like, sort of look like a doll basically and like that just wasn't her and i think that's beautiful honestly she yeah. like she's just like an inspiration to me like as a person you know I, I love her so much like you know i could never even hope to like for just one second to be able to sing like her but like as a person what she stood for the things that she did like she was unapologetically herself and like that really like that resonates with me really i just, i don't know i love her so much and yeah, I definitely agree with what Elizabeth, with everything that Elizabeth said, you know, even though you might not personally be a fan of her voice or her music, because I know, you know, her voice is kind of unique, it's not for everybody, 
um, you can't deny the influence that she had as a musician. You can't deny, you know, the type of person that she was and how she sort of stood out in uh, her society and was, you know, embrace. She embraced that. She embraced the fact that she was kind of an outcast, was kind of a misfit, and you know, stayed true to herself. And I really think that's very commendable. So, I definitely think she's a well-deserved. She, she definitely deserves her icon status in classic rock. So thanks for listening. As always, we want to thank all of our followers on Spotify and Instagram for supporting us. And um, I just want to say that from now on, we're also, in addition to our promotion posts, we are going to be doing fun facts every day until... Thursday and Friday when it's time for us to promote. Make sure to follow us on our Instagram at bitrg.podcast to go see these fun facts. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the music. And make sure to tune in next week for our final episode on the 27 Club.